Hello, Worcester and the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This show is created and produced by Action by Design and is about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy, where we use real-world examples about the nuance and intersections of this work by focusing in on my home city of Worcester, Massachusetts, the second largest city in New England. And we are continuing our conversation on equity-based housing solutions, and we are really excited to be speaking with Mary Beth Campbell of the Worcester Community Action Council. This is Public Hearing. For those who have been listening since the beginning, this is episode eight of our series on equity-based housing solutions, and we are continuing this conversation with another rock star guest, Mary Beth Campbell, the executive director of the Worcester Community Action Council. WCAC is the federally designated community action agency for Central Mass. Their mission is helping people move to economic self-sufficiency through programs, partnerships, and advocacy. Started in 1965 under President Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty, today the agency serves the city of Worcester and 45 surrounding towns through emergency and social service programs. Mary Beth has more than 20 years experience in public policy, public education, and project management in the areas of clean energy, education, economics, and workforce development. Prior to joining WCAC, she was the executive director of SkillWorks at the Boston Foundation, an ambitious effort to create a workforce development system that helps low-skill, low-income residents move to family-sustaining jobs and helps empower helps employers find and retain skilled employees. From 2012 to 2014, Mary Beth was the Commonwealth's first cross-secretariat director of education and workforce development, advising the Patrick administration's executive offices of education, labor, and workforce, and housing and economic development. Mary Beth, that is a mouthful, oh but I'm gosh. sure there's things that were not included in that fabulous bio. I always like to invite guests to uh, share anything else about their background experience or social location, parts of you know their identity that might influence how you walk through and, and perceive the world that might be beneficial for listeners to know. So yes. welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for the introduction. I just write that one for my mom so she knows what I do for a living. <laughs> uh, it's a mouthful for sure. Uh, but I'm, I'm a fourth-generation kid from Worcester. I grew up here. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very devout to public service. My father was a police officer. My mom was a school secretary. My siblings are in some kind of service sector. Um, So that was just a natural uh, pathway for me. I think it was just born into my DNA, and that is the work that I do. Uh, I still live in the city. I'm married three years to a wonderful woman. I'm a gay woman in the city, a gay leader in the city. So um, it's not something that I actually often identify myself as, but I think the more I am in this work, the more important I think it is for me to make sure I say that out loud too. So uh, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm excited that I get to do this work in my hometown too. Well, thank you so much for your visibility and for being here and having this conversation. Um, Housing, such a complex, nuanced issue. Uh, I want to jump to WCAC for a second, though. And for folks who aren't familiar with what a community action agency does and what the focuses of that work, that your programs are, would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yes. So as you mentioned, Lyndon Bain Johnson, LBJ, uh, started the War on Poverty in the mid-60s. So we're a 57-year-old agency. We're one of 23 in Massachusetts and one of 1,000 across the U.S. Um, so we were ramped up um, during the Civil Rights Movement, during the creation of Head Start, uh, and we're an anti-poverty movement. Uh, but now that I've been in this role for three years, um, it has become more abundantly clear, not that it wasn't before, 
But we really are an aftermarket solution to root cause issues in our economy and our uh, social network and other things. So, and we're still fighting that. So um, Community Action was created to help stabilize people in crisis. And we do a very good job doing that. We have a number of programs. We're most known for our fuel assistance program. We serve about 15,000 households, which equate to about 30,000 individuals across our service territory. We help pay down heating bills, um, delivered fuel. We sometimes help with electricity bills, um, especially now where heating costs are rising, coupled with inflation, the pressure is on. So that is our biggest program, but we also have a youth-based job and education program. We do summer employment for youth. We work a little bit with adults also, and we have Head Start as well. Um, But in my work here over the last three years, as much as I acknowledge, applaud, and value that work that we do to stabilize people in crisis, we talk about our mission to achieve economic self-sufficiency for people. Uh, And I think part of what we need to do more of is create, as we were just talking before this started, more opportunities that create opportunities for resiliency um, to sustain for individuals. And so we're building a new set of work that's really more focused on financial empowerment tools uh, and connecting organizations uh, with our shared clients a little bit better in terms of how people are accessing our services and other organization services too together. And the sustainability piece is so critical because I feel like, you know, and I was sharing this with you a little bit. I have, you know, folks in, in my family who often are on, a, have a different perspective of mm-hmm. of myself on how we create programs and pathways for folks to achieve stability and support because there's this mindset that once you give folks access to something that is, is free or, you know, is subsidized or something that they're just going to continue to take that. Right. Right. And like, it's, it's such a harmful mindset and it's also wrong. Right. I I think, and and maybe you can speak to some of what, how you've seen that manifest in the folks that you work with. Um, But the, you know, the, the fuel program and like the things that you were just talking about, we, our last episode, we spoke with Yvette Dyson from Worcester Common Ground Mm -hmm. and we're talking about prevention, right? Prevention, preventing homelessness. And like, these are mechanisms that prevent homelessness. And that's where I think through the work of this sort of um, developing resiliency center, where I really want to tap into that. So our fuel assistance program, we call it LIHEAP, Low Income Heating Energy Assistance Program. That is, I think, one of those early warning, early indicator pieces of data that we need to leverage better. Um, And leverage better just with with our counterparts that are are in housing, because that is when we know someone is having a hard time paying their heating bills, they are more likely to also be having difficulty with rent, mortgage, um, and other bills in their household. So that's definitely part of an early warning system. Um, And I think part of where we can intercept and help with prevention farther upstream than when somebody's being evicted. Absolutely. And, and like, I want to underscore as well, like the, the, challenges and you know I, I on the show I often will reference you know the interpersonal relationships that I have because mm-hmm. I feel like those personal feelings and personal relationship fuel so many people's yes. perspectives on mm-hmm. how they vote how they support or not support programs and things and I find time and time again both in my work and in family relationships and conversations that there's almost this like competition with people that are at 
similar, slightly below, slightly higher economic positions Mm -hmm. that is like, oh, I was at that point where I almost couldn't pay that bill, but then I was able to. I got out of it. I I was able to do it. Right. And like, how do we challenge that mindset? I'm kind of going off script here a little bit, but like, how do we challenge that as, as as a mindset? Because I think that's something that I think is so harmful for people advocating for and adopting Mm -hmm. programs that fund institutions and organizations that are doing prevention work, that are doing equity work, that are doing um, housing assistance work, considering the topic of of this series. Um, What needs to change? Well, I think destigmatizing is a start. So I think, and I hear that too among my sometimes colleagues in other sectors and friends and family where there is that sort of retort of like, well, I, I grew up poor or I grew, you know, this and that and the other thing and comparing themselves to somebody else. Um, first of all, no one's situation is cookie cutter. Um, and I grew up in a family that my mother always used to say, you never know what happens behind closed doors. Right. So no judgment. Um, although, well, I won't talk about my mother, but, <laughs> uh, but I also think that, there's a lot of assumptions that are baked in to those opinions where um, individuals who might need to access benefits, um, you know, the fuel assistance program is a great example. You can be in a family of four and, you know, make $72,000, which is a very good paying job that's well over median income for Massachusetts by about $20,000. You know, a nurse, a starting nurse. And there's a lot of assumptions one that someone might not wouldn't be eligible for a program like fuel assistance. Oh, that's not for me. I make too much money. I didn't grow up that way. And then on the other end of that, it's oh well, people, those people, those people with mm. my air quotes, um, they probably don't work. They're just feeding off the system. Well, the truth is, most people that access our benefits are employed. Most people are. Most seventy percent of people who access um, SNAP, food benefits, it's they're employed. And I so, like to, I'm just going to like restate, or I'm going to ask you to restate yeah. that for listeners because I think that is a critical misconception. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is a huge misconception because it's then associated with laziness in this intergenerational, multi-generational abuse of the system. And that there is plenty of data to indicate, to demonstrate and show evidence that these are working people. Working people who are fighting to stay in a job that probably is below real true living wage. And that's the other element of this in terms of housing. You have to work 80 hours a week to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment in the city. Barely, barely able to afford it. And so there's it's there's access issues, there's stigma issues, there's a lot of assumption that I think that manifests through media and other other means, uh, folklore, whatever it is that has just perpetuated this idea that people aren't deserving because they're assumed to be lazy and they're just taking advantage. And and that is something that I will like shout from the rooftops when I can in, in yeah. conversations while also at the same time advocating for the fact that I don't believe that humans should just be seen as production machines. Exactly. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so there's right. like the, the balance there yes. of like, yes, let's, let's talk about the reality of the situation yeah. in the current context of like living in a capitalist economy, yeah. but also like, how do we start to reframe our minds yeah. in a way that doesn't look at human value at what they're able to produce. Well, it's it, for us and for community action, and I would assume other anti-poverty um, types of organizations, a lot of our compliance and regulation, that is baked right in. 
And if you look back on the history of community action, it's actually very compelling history where it ties together civil rights movements and where, say, the Southern Congressional Delegation start to put very soon after community action was created a lot of regulations on based on judgment of whether or not individuals that were hiring in Georgia for Head Start were actually sending those teachers to march in the civil rights. So um, the intersectionality of race immediately becomes part of the bureaucracy. And then that is just breeds a lot of regulatory actions that are built on mistrust. And we are in many ways a compliance organization that is required to make sure we mitigate fraud. And that is the ba- those are the barriers that have been built for 57 years plus in terms of the judgment baked in that somebody who's going to get a $600 benefit for fuel that, by the way, $600 isn't going to cover that many tanks of oil this winter, that they're going to somehow scam us. And so we are we, – that is baked into regulatory stipulations of how we operate. And that is often the – divide between people even attempting to access services or resources Mm -hmm. that might prevent a more, I guess, critical or significant instance of eviction or... Yeah, well, it's also, it's personal and invasive. It's rigorous. And I'll just repeat invasive because we ask questions. Now, since I've worked at WCAC, I've refinanced my mortgage twice. I couldn't beat some of the terms, so I did it twice. Um, And... I did everything online, never met a person in, in in person, or I did it by phone. I barely submitted documents to remortgage a few hundred thousand dollar home by myself. Well, my, my wife do. But the individuals who have to apply for our fuel assistance, the amount of information they're required to give to us that we have to look into and vet, it's very invasive. Mm. And it's scary. And it, it throws... It, People will not persist either. They won't push, persist through the process. Yeah, and, and you feel like, what do I owe this? You know, right. for this, like, what am I giving up? What am yeah. I, you know, and and like even just giving up like the sense of privacy is absolutely. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, there is no privacy in that respect because you're asking about everybody's income in the home, who's living in your home, and you might have someone, you know, couch surfing on your on your couch for you know your brother might be living with you for six months or a year. If they somebody finds out that he's living there, his income has to count. Wow. So that there are things like that that are just really frustrating. Now, I will give credit recently. Um, the Baker administration has introduced this common application that connects MassHealth to SNAP to close the SNAP gap. And most recently, there's still th- things that need to be worked out. We're going to be able to connect SNAP eligibility to LIHEAP eligibility. So that will make the process better. But before we started talking, we were talking about, you know, the time it takes for someone to sometimes walk around the city to all the different agencies to get a social security card, to get an address, to get a P.O. box, whatever it might be. It is very time intensive and very expensive, frankly, to be poor. Yes. Yes. And that is we we create that. And that's where my role and then my team's role, we're really trying to think about through this resiliency center work, how do we shorten the time on task to make that ROI for the client better? The the cost of being poor yes. is such yes. a critical 
conversation point. And for listeners, I'm going to give a little bit of a teaser. We have a series that's going to be coming out um, that highlights some of the conversations that I had this past September down in Miami for the Smart Cities Expo. Mm. Um, and I was having conversation, I had the privilege of talking to a lot of mayors from across the country, specifically around how they're using ARPA dollars, the American Rescue Plan Act funding. And there are some really innovative solutions. Um, and one of which actually is very close to us in Worcester in Providence. Um, the mayor and, and the city have developed a program uh, because they did an assessment of arrests and who was being arrested in the community mm-hmm. and why and they found that the highest number of arrests are happening because people are driving on a suspended license mm-hmm. why are people driving on a suspended license they oftentimes can't afford the associated fees or the reinstatement fee etc so and I think this is brilliant the city is created a plan that allow that a program where individuals in the city are able to work with a city official to reinstate their license and tap into a fund that will pay their associated fees. So now we're both addressing Mm -hmm. and they're already seeing a drop in arrests and they're making this like very critical thing that people need, especially in Massachusetts, in New England, right? A license or like ability to get around and like are actually addressing root cause issues of the solutions yeah. are simple oftentimes. They and we have created this really complicated, siloed, intentionally complicated and siloed system, I think. And we've experienced that even through COVID. We have um, a lot of youth violence resources. We're one of the lead agencies uh, for the Safe and Successful Youth Initiative. And during the height of COVID, we had some additional resources through that grant that were they weren't surplus, but they were unspent for a variety of reasons. So we wanted to shift it over to um, simulate the COVID relief we were doing in other programs. And we got a lot of pushback from our funder of how were we going to use those funds. At the time, we were working with undocumented families and we were providing $500 flat fee or no fee $500 gift cards, um, upwards of thousands of dollars for families to um, spend on food, utility, childcare, medical bills, funerals, whatever whatever mm. they needed. Um and we wanted to mimic that for this particular program. And this funder wanted us to track what the kids were spending the money on. And they wouldn't let us spend the money on court fees. I like, that is the core, one of the core reasons why they are on our caseload is because they don't show up for court because they can't pay the court fees. So why are we going to contribute to that in terms of let, that cycle? Let us break that cycle and let us pay the court fees. And they wanted us to track, you know, they didn't want us to, the kids to buy shoes or a TV or cigarettes. I was like, it's in the middle of COVID. They want to buy a TV and a pack of cigarettes? Like, I don't care. I w- want to watch the news and de-stress by having some tobacco? Go for it. I mean, I'm not a fan of smoking, but you know you know what I mean? It's just yep. that kind of, that's the judgment that I'm, is baked in to these rules. Well, and it's ridiculous. And this is an area <laughs> that I love to like nerd out about um i've actually been reading this book recently called designs for the pluriverse by arturo escobar Mm -hmm. and the the long it's very heady kind of academic it's like i've been you know i like dictionary some of the words (laughs) myself um but the concept is like that something that i'm gathering from it is like there is no one right way to live at an individual or at a community scale Mm -hmm. right 
the things that are equally valued by most people mm -hmm. are the basic needs, right? right? You know, food, shelter, housing, et cetera, things that many people advocate for as human rights, right? And I'm going to throw access to the internet in there as mm -hmm. well, right? Absolutely. Like there yeah. are critical things that enable or disable or at least create significant barriers for one to like access mm -hmm. any type of mobility, economic mobility, job mobility, career mobility, which right. are often you know, obviously interconnected. Um, but this concept that like there's a one size fits all. Yeah, that we have to be homogenous. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was like one of the biggest failures of all yeah. of our systems. Well, it's, it's bred by fear, right? So I don't know about you. So I'm going to be afraid and judge you just because we're not the same. And I'd just rather you be like me. It would be a lot easier. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Just be easier if we wore the same things, lived in the same kind of neighborhood. It would just be easier and then we could you know everyone could get along. Yep. And that just is an absurd, you know, concept. Right. We're just we are not the same, nor should we be. Yeah. And one right. of the things that we were talking with Leah Bradley about on the last episode was like this this notion of um like data and like mm -hmm. The value of data, but also the challenge that a constant pursuit of we need more data presents yes. when we have individuals sitting across a table saying, I am unhoused and this is what right. I need. And someone's response is, we need more data yeah. to see if that's actually what you need. Well, funders love in philanthropy. And I, you know, I worked at the Boston Foundation and ran a funder collaborative and I've, I moved away from this relatively quickly in the start of that particular job, but we constantly talk about scale. Funders want to see scale, replication and scale. And that's not a bad thing. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm in for systematizing things that work well, but not everything works well for everybody at the same time. And that, that's a struggle for nonprofits to meet scale because, you know, we eat what we kill in terms of, I say that all the time, my staff, we're federally and state funded and we get what we get and we should be happy with it, basically, <laughs> you know, and we, because of that, we also are breeding or perpetuating an issue around living wages among our own employees too. We have employees who are also our clients and that is a frustrating reality that I, as the head of the agency, have to navigate and figure out how do we raise other dollars to help end that so our, our own staff. And, you know, we see that dichotomy with staff when we were doing CARES funding. Um, I got some feedback from staff of like, well, why do they get it? <laughs> mm. You know, and that's a fair – it is a fair question. People are, you know – working really hard all day long helping people and they need help too. But there's, there's just this perpetuation of this that I think it's, it's okay if we work with, start with 30 people, you know, it's okay if we move to 50 people, like let's start, we have to start somewhere and we're experiencing that now we, we recently have hired what we're calling cliff effect coaches. You know, they're sort of mobility mentors, um, very focused on the client-centered decision-making. What is success for you rather than you have to meet these goals? And so we're starting to work with a lot of individuals on financial literacy, financial empowerment, but we're also trying to bridge the gap for individuals. We just had a woman, she's been in a hotel for two years, and finally she we helped her get a lease, we helped her give her first month payment, but our first lesson security, but she's also going to continue to work with our coach so she doesn't hit her own cliff. You know, she's going to start to lose benefits. She has a job now. So there's, she's starting to see, 
you know, that kind of stabilization, but we need to stick with her too. And, you know, sometimes funding doesn't pay for that. Doesn't pay for persistence. And and for folks who might not be as familiar with like the cliff affected definition, mm-hmm. could you just provide a quick, because yeah, it's a critical piece. The basics are if you're an individual who makes a certain amount of money, you may be eligible for things like SNAP or a housing voucher or childcare. As your income, household income increases, you there's not a scaffolding way that you lose those benefits. You just immediately lose it. So what happens is that your household income actually ends up being less because you're not getting that supplement to sustain you until your income is enough that you actually don't need that benefit. And for individuals in Massachusetts, you have to be making a little over $26 an hour to actually hit the point where you can live without needing benefits. And a $26 an hour job probably requires in most cases, a bachelor's degree. So there's just... Which are less again, and less attainable. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. They're more expensive. Well, I could talk to you for hours, and we actually have like two minutes left. So what are some of the things that you would like to highlight around this conversation, around housing, around the work that, that you do, and things specifically for listeners to keep in mind or to consider as they think about how they vote, how they advocate, how mm-hmm. they spend, how they access resources, et cetera. I think the biggest thing I would highlight and, and encourage and advocate for is self-empower. If you, you know, see something, say something, I guess. And I, I, I don't know how we can come out of the last three years and not be accountable to being equitable for people and with people. And I think that's an issue that we're facing at the municipal level with the ARPA dollars and how those are being um, distributed and decisions around that and a throughout lack of process and transparency in, in a multitude of profiles and what's happening in our city times, you know, hundreds of other cities across the U S but I think we, we absolutely need to move away from the idea that government and public service, and even in some case, you know, the just service in community is doing it for people. That is, we cannot have that attitude anymore. We have to do it with, and I'm trying as a leader, both in my organization, in my personal life, in, in my just being a leader in the city is making sure I'm accountable to that own ethos for myself and that every time I make a, I go to make a decision around what we're going to do, I want to know who's included in helping us make that decision. And I think we we have to we have to be really relentlessly persistent about that. Well, Mary Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've been talking to Mary Beth Campbell from the Worcester Community Action Council. Uh, you've been listening to Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Public Hearing is our show about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy for every person in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Joshua Croak, founder of Action by Design, where we help organizations, coalitions, and cities imagine and materialize equitable, just, and joyful communities through art and design. Get even more connected to our show at publichearing.co or follow us on Twitter at publichearingma. Our audio producer is Giuliano Durazio, who also made our show music. Thanks to Kelly Kajurek and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of this show. As always, the work continues, Worcester, and thanks for listening. <laughs>